0: author of this letter. Now you have some modern scholars. uh, By the way, I'm going to be talking kind of fast today because there's a lot of information for me to get to, so just hang in there with me. Um, There's some modern scholars who think that uh, Peter was not the author of the letter, and they have some reasons for that, but the reasoning is really not very well grounded. So we're going to stick with the historic view of the church that Peter is the author of this letter, uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Secondly, about the date. Well, it's believed that Peter writes this letter while he's in Rome. And we know that between the years of 61 to 62 AD that Peter was in Rome with the apostle Paul. So Paul was in Rome as well. But it's interesting when you read through Peter's letter, nowhere does he say, he says greetings from lots of different people, but nowhere does he say, I greet you or Paul greets you in the name of Jesus Christ. Which would have been something for Peter to do if Paul was there with him, right? I mean, you see all the letters that Paul writes. He also mentions the people who are there with him. Peter, by not mentioning... Paul, in between 61 and 62 AD, they were in Rome together, uh, leads us to believe that, well, Paul had already moved on from Rome. And so the thinking is that this letter came after Paul had left Rome in 62 AD. So somewhere on a start date for the date of the letter would be 63 AD. I hope you follow that. Now, if you combine that with the fact that um, Peter was, was martyred in 64 AD by the emperor Nero... Uh, So you've got pretty a tight window of when he's in Rome that he could have written this letter. So it comes after Paul, after 62 A.D., but before he's martyred in 64. So the belief is that he wrote this letter sometime between 63 and 64 A.D. Everybody with me so far? All right, so then also what about the recipients of this letter? Who is he writing this letter to? Well, Peter says who he's writing this letter to. He says in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he mentions several different geographic locations, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I've got a map for you here. And it shows all these different provinces, uh, territories that the Roman people, the Roman uh, armies had conquered Uh, This is Asia Minor. This is modern-day Turkey. You can see Pontius and Bithynia on the north part of Asia Minor there. Um, You can also see the more inland uh, regions or provinces of Galatia, Cappadocia, and what's called Asia. So Peter is writing this letter to Christians who live in these provinces. The anticipation is that when Peter's letter arrives, for instance, in Galatia, that it will then be duplicated and it will be sent out to all the other smaller churches throughout that province. And same thing with Pontius and Bithynia and same thing with Cappadocia, etc., Now, notice that Peter calls his recipients, back to verse 1, the elect exiles of the dispersion. These terms are terms that are historically, especially in the first century, used to refer to Jewish people. So it seems like he is writing to Jewish people when he he calls his recipients elect exiles of the dispersion. The actual word in the Greek that's translated dispersion is the word diaspora. Perhaps you've heard of the word diaspora before. Again, for a Jewish person to refer to his audience as the diaspora kind of makes you think, okay, well, he's talking about Jewish people here. That would seem to be the case. However, some scholars have suggested that Peter is redefining these terms to include both Gentiles who, like the Jewish people, have been booted out of their local communities. Now, here's the interesting thing, is that the public-sponsored, government-sponsored persecution of Christians did not begin until 64 A.D. Um, And so Peter, to be writing this letter right at the... And then that didn't even move outside of Rome and into Asia Minor until a couple of years later. And so for Peter to be writing this letter, which really addresses the subject of persecution, um, uh, it seems like, uh, you know... That we're not talking about uh, Gentile Christians here. And so from Galatians uh, chapter—and so if we—where am I at? I've lost myself here. Anyhow, um, uh, no no surprise. In other words, some scholars have suggested that Peter's intended audience includes both Jews and Gentiles. Um, And it is possible that that's the case. However, I do not believe that that's the case. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter and Paul shake hands And they agree that Paul should be the apostle to the Gentiles and that Peter would be the apostle to the Jews as well as some of the other apostles. He says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that is to Barnabas and Paul, that we, Barnabas and Paul, should go to the Gentiles, and they would go to the circumcised. That is, Peter, James, and John would go and evangelize The Jewish people. So, from Galatians chapter two, we learn that Peter viewed himself as an apostle to the Jewish to the Jews, and they would hopefully bring them into faith in Christ. That he felt like he was sent to the Jewish people to evangelize them. That he felt like he was sent to the Jewish people to share about this good news of Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, and to try and win them to faith in Christ. And so, for that reason, I'll call that reason number one. I believe that Peter is writing to Jewish Christians here is because he viewed himself as an apostle to the Jews. You follow me? So he's saying he's calling them the elect exiles of the dispersion, and he's doing that because he feels like that's his target audience. Now, reason number two is because he uses that language, elect exiles of the dispersion, terms that are historically, especially in the first century, pregnant with meaning referring to the Jewish people. And so Peter calls his recipients by those names. Now, you may say, well, Gordon, why does any of this matter? Uh, what's, What's the big, I mean, What's the deal? Why does any of this matter at all? I mean, Gentiles are going to receive this letter, right? Yeah, we're Gentiles. Gentiles are going to be encouraged by this letter, right? Yeah, Gentiles are going to be encouraged by this letter. Non-Jewish people will read this letter. So what is the big deal? Well, let me show you. Back in verse 1, Peter calls his recipients the elect. The doctrine of election means... That God chose certain people for salvation, that God predetermines who is going to go to heaven. That is what election means. And Paul deals with this subject over in Romans chapter 9. A couple of years ago, we did a series going through the book of Romans, and we covered Romans chapter 9. And we saw in Romans chapter 9 that God has predetermined or elected certain people from amongst others to go to heaven. And in this case, in Romans chapter 9, Paul is specifically talking about the Jewish people who would, uh, in the first century, would not be caught up in Titus' march against Jerusalem, who would not be caught up in the Roman government's uh, smackdown of the province of Judea. And when we study that, we acknowledge that, yes, God does elect certain people to salvation, but that that is not the norm. That these Jewish people that God had preserved from amongst his people to come to faith in Christ that would not be destroyed by Titus and the march of the Romans to destroy Jerusalem, uh, that these people were what uh, Paul calls the elect. What we saw, again, though, that this is not the normative process of salvation. Jesus said, choose this day whom you will serve. Salvation is a choice. Human free will is in this cap, uh, caught up in this concept of, of salvation. Election does happen. It is biblical. Read Romans chapter 9. It's right there for you. But it is not the normative process of salvation for the vast majority of people who would come to faith in Christ back to verse 1, we're getting to the point that I was trying to make of why does any of this matter. Verse 1, Peter calls these Jewish recipients the elect. Peter is preserving a, I'm sorry, God is preserving a remnant of Jewish people unto himself. He is sparing a sliver of the Jewish population from the impending destruction that's coming from the Romans. Uh, They're going to burn the city of Jerusalem to the ground. They're going to slaughter everyone and everything in their path as they're marching their way down to Jerusalem. And if Peter, in verse 1, has in view not just Jewish Christians, but he has in view Gentiles as well, then Peter is enlarging the scope of who the elect are. Hmm, think on that a little bit. Peter is expanding basically the definition, that, the limited definition that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 9, that the elect are these Jewish people who are going to become Christians, who are going to be spared from the destruction that's coming to Jerusalem. And that Peter, by referring to the elect here in verse 1 as not just Jewish Christians, but also he's addressing his recipients of Gentiles as well. Well, if he's addressing Gentiles as well, then he's basically saying that this doctrine of election applies across the board to everybody who would come to faith in Christ. In other words, where Paul limits the scope of who the elect are in Romans chapter 9, Peter would be expanding that to include not just a select group of Jews living in the first century, but everyone who comes to faith in Christ. That God chooses everyone who comes to faith in Christ. That election is not, as Paul teaches, an exceptional method of salvation, but rather it is the normative method of salvation. That we really don't have a choice in the matter. And that becomes problematic, unless you're an old, salty Presbyterian. And I know that we have some old, salty Presbyterians here, so you know, we'll take it, take it for what it is. Here's my point. As I was reading through some commentaries, I watched several of the commentary writers engage in some serious mental gymnastics. I mean, they were tweaking and messing with the original language and the Greek in an attempt to try and say, well, see, this is what I really want, who I think Peter's addressing. This is who I really think Peter, instead of just reading the word diaspora, written by a Jew and knowing who he's talking to. They're like, ah, I think we need to expand that view. Now, they're doing that because they're coming to the Bible with a certain theological commitment, with a certain theological tradition, and they're wanting to impose on the text things that the text really is not saying. They're wanting for election to be the normative process of salvation, something that, at least in this text, the Bible is not willing to teach. Um, Our aim week in and week out is to do all the historical and contextual work that we can so that we can get as close as we can to the original meaning of the Bible as possible. We want to avoid reading things into the text that the original author never intended. We want to avoid superimposing our theological traditions and our predetermined biases onto what the biblical author meant. Um, if I've heard it once, I have heard this a thousand times, somebody making the argument to me about the Bible, well, that's just your interpretation of the Bible. Ever heard anybody say that? As though there's more than one possible outcome to what the biblical author was intending. Um, Well, friends, there is only one meaning to every passage in the Bible, and that is our, uh, from this side, right? So we have the biblical author who wrote this stuff, and now here we are 2,000 years later reading this stuff, it is our responsibility then to pull out maps and to talk about dates and to know a good bit about the author and to learn a good bit about the context of of the people in which he wrote, to learn about the culture, to learn about the customs, and make sure to try and get as close as we can, kind of spiral down closer and closer and closer to try and nail down what exactly the original author meant. And so that's part part of why we do what we do week in and week out. Paul calls these efforts, 2 Timothy chapter 2, end of verse 15, rightly handling the Word of God. Now, that's our introduction. I either bored the pants off of y'all, or I don't know. Uh, But anyway, I felt like it was an important detail, and I just wanted to present that to you. Because, you know, if you're reading through those first couple of verses, and I didn't cover them this morning, you might draw some conclusions, and so I just wanted you to be well informed. All right, so there you go. All right, back to our text that we read earlier, verse 3, and I'll try to move quickly through this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, we could spend the rest of today talking about that verse. You say, Gordon, based on your introduction, I believe that you could spend the rest of this morning talking about those verses. Um, But I won't do that because of time constraints. I'm just going to give you the nitty-gritty of what Peter means here in that verse. Peter mentions being born again. That means that we have put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. That means that we have experienced the forgiveness of our sins. He says of that person that because Jesus rose from the dead, because of the resurrection of Jesus, that that gives us hope for the future. Peter calls it a living hope. If I was to translate that word or that phrase living hope into the modern vernacular, I might say a walking around kind of hope. A living hope is something that hangs on us and encourages us wherever we go. It is a walking around hope. It's a hope that goes with us to the grocery store. It's a hope that walks with us into a hospital room. It's a hope that stands next to us while we're standing over the grave of a lost loved one. It is a living hope. It is vital. It's a part of us. It strengthens us, and it's with us as we walk through the day. That's verse 3. And Peter praises God for this fact. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Awesome. So verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So he's talking further about this living hope that we have of heaven. He calls it our inheritance. Peter describes this future life in heaven with three words. He says our inheritance in heaven is imperishable. To be imperishable means that it's something that will not die. It's something that will not deteriorate with time. He calls it undefiled. This is something that you and I, on this side of eternity, cannot foul up. We cannot contaminate what Jesus did on the cross. The work that he done is finished. Uh, He poured out his blood for your life and mine. It is undefilable. And then he calls our hope of a future life in heaven unfading. It's timeless. Some of you have a t-shirt that used to be navy, and now it's pale blue because it's been through the washing machine like a hundred different times. Well, unlike that, our spot in heaven, our place in heaven is unfading. Uh, It will never, heaven never fades. Peter goes on to say that our inheritance, our spot in heaven, get this, is kept. I love these descriptive words, is kept in heaven for us. How cool is that? I love that word, kind of like a reserved seat on an airplane. That spot is kept For you, Kind of like a reserved table at a restaurant. When you call up ahead and you say, hey, we're coming. We're bringing a party of however many. And they reserve that spot for you just the same. God, our Father in heaven, has reserved your spot for you in heaven. It is waiting on you. Peter, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Which means we have to accept what he says. Follow that? Peter, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that, we have, that, that um, our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Friends, those are not my words. That's not me trying to reassure you. That is God through his word reassuring you. Your spot is kept for you in heaven. Furthermore, Peter goes on to say of this inheritance in heaven, verse 5, who by God's power, God's power is involved in preserving this, who by God's power are being guarded. Friends, God's power is guarding your spot in heaven, your inheritance, through faith for a salvation ready for you to be revealed in the last time. That's at the end of human history. So Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that our salvation in heaven is being guarded by God's power. Friends, there is no power in the universe stronger than God's power. That's why we call God the omnipotent God. And because God is omnipotent and he's guarding this, friends, nothing can touch it. This is an impregnable uh, kind of a decision that God has made. This reminds me of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, and verse 38. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, uh, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That sounds like a man who was convinced that God was holding his spot for him in heaven. And if that doesn't get you excited, I really don't. Maybe you're thinking about the introduction that I gave earlier. I don't know. Still kind of <laughs> percolating on that. All right, verse 8. This is our last verse. Verse 8, Peter says of his recipients, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see Jesus, you believe in him. In other words, though you have never met Jesus, you love him. Though you've, though you've never and looked eyeballs to eyeballs and engaged with him person to person, shook his hand, had a hug, watched him walk by even, though you've never seen any of that, you believe in him. And although he's not standing in front of you now, uh, you believe in him. Peter is marveling at the faith of people who believe in Jesus, who love the Lord Jesus, who are devoted to the Lord Jesus, despite everything going on around them in their world and persecution that seems like it's coming their way. They continue to be devoted and they continue to believe and they continue to stand fast. But, if, but despite the fact that they've never had the benefit like Peter did of meeting Jesus in person. And Peter finds this commendable. Peter finds this inspirational. People who have never met Jesus in the material world and yet they firmly believe in him anyways. All right, well, that is um, our text for today. Those are Peter's opening thoughts to his first letter. And we'll leave it there for now because it's time for us to turn our attention to our most important questions. The question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Well, let's talk about that. I've got a slide for you here. Uh, this shows four sources of truth. This comes from John Wesley. Some of you all know that I I've, I've attended a Wesleyan-Armenian school, and so I've been schooled in a lot of good Wesleyan-Armenian theology, and I love reading John Wesley. And one of, the things, his, one of his great contributions, amongst many, but one of his great contributions was this concept of where truth comes from. Um, he identified four sources of truth in our world, four, four areas by which we discern and pull to piece, piece these things together that frame our ultimate reality. And the first of those uh, he calls reason. Reason is philosophy. Reason are the sciences. Reason is the rational mind looking at the world around us and making basic observations about life. And then from those basic observations, we make presuppositions. Those presuppositions, when they're knit together and formed together, they form a worldview. It's how we see ultimate reality. It's how we determine. Uh, what's, what's right, what's wrong, it's how we determine you know, our purpose in life, those sorts of things. And so we use reason to help us come to that place. The second uh, source of truth that he identified is tradition. These are the values passed on to us from our church family. These are the values passed on to us from mom and dad. These are the values passed on to us or that we acquire from the community in which we live. These are foundational rock-bottom beliefs that help us form the basis of our morality and of our worldview. Again, that is tradition. Then there's experience. We all have experiences in life. Those experiences in life shape our value system. Those experiences may even help us determine where we end up in life and what kind of work we do. Experience is a powerful and effective tool for shaping our concept of ultimate reality. And then finally, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, Wesley says there's a fourth source of truth uh, that is pulled into the mix, and that is Scripture. Um, Scripture for the Christian represents, and you can write this down, uh, this is how I, I think of Scripture. Scripture is God's truth in written form. That's what the Bible is. This right here is God's truth, his eternal truth, in written form for us to read. So this is why theologians down through the ages have formulated doctrines around Scripture, like the doctrine of inerrancy. Inerrancy teaches that there's no errors in what the Bible, what, what's here, uh, like the doctrine of infallibility, that there's no falsehoods in what the Bible teaches. And all of these together form a basis that the Scripture is uh, the ultimate authority for us as believers. Um, I've got another slide for you here, and this shows these same four sources of truth, but it puts them in relation to one another here's what wesley has to say about all this Um, he places scripture as the primary truth source right so he's saying this is more important than your reason he says that this is more important than your experience he says that this right here is more important than what your church has taught you than what your mom and dad have taught you than what the community in which you live has taught you your tradition That this is the primary truth source in our lives. Wesley is essentially saying that Scripture should be the primary truth source for us. And when or if our science disagrees with Scripture, then we default back to Scripture. And that when our experience, when sleeping with my boyfriend or sleeping with my girlfriend, which just seems like it's just so right, and maybe even the community in which I live affirms that and says, yeah, absolutely, there's nothing wrong with that. But when the Bible speaks up and says, hey, hold on, time out just a second then we default back to what Scripture has to say. Um, Friends, we should look at Scripture and ask ourselves, does the Bible agree with the conclusion I'm making? You know, I'm on Facebook or I'm on Instagram or I'm on whatever the platform may be that you look at, and you see what other people think. Uh, Perhaps you listen to somebody on the radio or you listen to somebody on TV and you're getting all these different opinions that are firing in, and those opinions begin to form the basis of your reality and your worldview and your value system. And we need to stop and ask ourselves, but does the Bible agree? And John Wesley's saying, hey, look, the Scriptures should be our primary true source, the default, if you would, when any of those other three sources disagree. Um, friends, this is why it's so important that we study the Word of God. We want to get it right. We want to take the time and go through great pains uh, to, uh, to correct um, whatever outcomes we may have come to that are in disagreement with Scripture. Furthermore, I hope that that little um, exercise that we shared just a few moments ago impresses on us that if we are drawing conclusions, again, that are not in step with Scripture, then we need to reevaluate our conclusions. What the Bible says, friends, is more important than what anybody else says or thinks. And we stand up here week in and week out, and we've got the kids down the hallway standing up week in and week out when we read from Scripture to try and reemphasize that point that God's Word is always the last Word. Um, so that's the first difference that this makes to your life and to mine, is that when it comes to interpreting ultimate reality, when it comes to defining our values and our morals for life, our purpose in life, that we look to the Bible first and that we also give the Bible the last Word. Um, All right, the second difference all this makes to your life and to mine, number two, is that it commends us to have an attitude of surety with regard to our salvation. Peter is trying to tell his audience, his recipients, hey, look, be confident in the fact that you're going to heaven. Some of us grew up in churches where we felt like if we didn't pray every day, if we didn't ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins every day, if we didn't go to confession at least once a week, if we didn't ask Jesus into our heart every day, then maybe we weren't going to go to heaven. Now let me ask you something. Does that sound like the kind of message that the apostle Peter's trying to get across? Not at all. Peter called our inheritance in heaven, verse 4, imperishable and undefilable and unfading. Peter was looking from the present to the future and saying, my spot in heaven, your spot in heaven is secure. Peter said, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God's power is guarding it. Listen, praying and asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins on a daily basis, that's a wonderful thing for us to do. We we ought to, like any child who has done wrong in their parents' eyes, we ought to feel sorry about that. We ought to want to repent of that. We ought to want to not live that way anymore. And so confession is a good thing for that reason. But friends, confessing our sins to Jesus today because of the sins we committed today, because we're worried that God's going to somehow erase our name out of the Lamb's book of life or that we're not going to have our spot in heaven. Friends, that's out of step with what Peter's teaching here. When it comes to the flip-floppiness of our spot in heaven, let me be very clear. God does not want us feeling that way. Friends, God is not waiting for us to reach some magical quota of sin in our lives. And then we hit that number and God says, Well, I mean, he hit the number, so I guess he's out of heaven now. Or I guess she's out of heaven now. Friends, that is the God who by his power is guarding our internal inheritance. So put your chin up. Walk like a person. Talk like a person. Be confident like a person who knows that their eternal home is with Jesus Christ in heaven. That's what Peter was writing here in his opening lines to impress upon his audience. Stop walking around as some of us do on pins and needles wondering if God is going to disown me today. Peter says that the holy word of God says a thousand times, no, God's not going to disown you today. Yours is an inheritance, imperishable, undefilable, unfading. It is kept for you. Those are the words he used. It is guarded by God's power. And in just a few moments, we're going to sing a song. It's called the, the Hymn of Heaven. Some of y'all are familiar with that. We've sang that around here a number of times. I want for us to sing that song like a group of people who are going there. All right? we're, we're singing about our future in heaven. And so let's sing it like a group of people who are going there. Let's have the hope that comes from knowing that heaven is our eternal home, filling our hearts and renewing our minds and strengthening our souls. Let that hope come alive in us today. Can we do that? Yeah. Amen. Hear these words again, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that we have been born again to a living hope. Let's join Peter in saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for a fresh reminder from the hand of Peter inspired by your Holy Spirit to remind us that our place in heaven is kept by the power of God. Lord, that it is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's what your word said. Lord, may we throughout this week walk out of this place, walk through our daily lives confident that heaven is our eternal home, that you are our Father, that Jesus is our Savior, that we will spend eternity with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for sharing this with us today from your word. As we come around this table now, we are reminded of the cost for us to have that hope or may we just in these quiet moments of communion say thank you show our gratitude god if there's some ongoing sin in our life that we need to confess like any child to their father may we do that Lord, we give you these moments work and move in our midst we pray in christ's holy name amen